Well, good morning, everyone. Before I read from the passage, let me start by asking you some questions. How confident can a Christian be that everything they believe is true? Can a, can a Christian be assured that they will have all that the Bible promises they will have? Eternal life, paradise, heaven. What about this? Why should a Christian pray? If God is God, then he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing. Why would he want to listen to the prayers of someone like me? More to the point, why would he want to do what I ask him to do? What about people who maybe uh, were once worshipping God and seem to be very committed Christians who now aren't, who are now away from the church? What about them? What's happening maybe in their lives? Is there an unforgivable sin? Is there an unforgivable sin? Now, I hope that at least one or two of those questions has piqued your interest um, because the passage of scripture that we're looking at today, to some extent, gives us a response to all of these questions. So it's a great passage for us to be looking at and speaks into some very important truths for us. Let's read together. So this is 1 John 5 and verses 13 to 19. This is the penultimate sermon now in the series we've been doing together through this book. So I'll read from verse 13 of 1 John 5, and this is the ESV translation. It says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, we're going to stop there. So there's just three things I'm going to draw out from this passage. And the first is this. What is written matters. What is written matters. So verse 13, let's just go back. John writes this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. What John's doing here is he's giving us his objective for writing this letter in the first place. And he's very clear. He's writing these things to Christians. He's writing to these things to those who have come to believe upon Jesus Christ. And he's writing that they might know that they have eternal life. He's written these things down that they might be confident, that they might be assured, 
that all of the things that have been promised to Christians are true. He wants us, he wants you, he wants me to be very, very confident that the promises made to us in the Bible, in the gospel, are sure and certain. So that the question, can a Christian really be certain that what he or she professes to be truth is true? Well, John would say, yes, if you read what I've written down, yes, you can have certainty. And of course, he's been speaking about our love for God. He's been speaking about our love toward one another. He's been speaking about the fact that Christians will not keep on sinning, will not indulge in sinful practices, but will move away from that, will reject that pattern of living, preferring instead to live in the glory of God and the revelation of who Jesus Christ is and in following him and in being obedient to him. These are the things which he's been writing about. And so the Bible, the words of God, really do matter. They matter to us. If we are going to lay hold of the promises of God, and if we're to live in the good of those, to live in the freedom that comes from all that God has said he will do, then we need to know his word. And we need to be churches that are faithful in reading and teaching the Bible. Churches like this church, where we take God's word really seriously. Churches which, if you like, put the Bible on the shelf and start to talk and about other things or, or give other types of speeches which aren't rooted in the Bible are not serving anybody and, and certainly are not stirring up in its members a true confidence that what God has said he will do, he will do. You're clutching at ideas, you're clutching at philosophies, you're, you're clutching at maybe ways of getting the best out of life, but what you're not digging in is a foundation upon which you can build your house so that it will stand the test of the storms, of the battering waves. But for those who build their lives on the rock, on God's word, you can be confident that when the waves start battering, the wind starts raging, the rains are lashing upon you, when life is tough, that you will stand firm and that you will know the closeness of God in those moments. You know, the, the word of God is sacred and precious to us. The word of God matters. And over the centuries across the history of the church, men and women have literally given their lives in order that the truthfulness of God's word would be kept sacred. One of the most famous um, in the time of the Reformation was a guy called Martin Luther. I've mentioned him before. He's a pivotal figure, really, in church history. During a time when popery and Roman Catholicism was speaking uh, deceptively, so the, the, the kind of so-called words of God, but really was creating a culture of incredible fear where people were being coaxed into giving their money with the promise that if they give their money, the souls of their loved ones would be released from their, their purgatory and would be spared from the fiery flames of hell. It, this was the notion which was being propagated many hundreds of years ago across Europe. And Martin Luther was reading the Bible 
And he was someone himself who, who feared for his salvation, for his life, who, who never felt he was good enough. And he came across the verse which says, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, righteousness or a right standing before God is by faith, which is a gift. He realized suddenly that he couldn't earn his way into heaven, but Jesus had done all that was necessary and gave this gift to him. And he said, it was like I was born again. And so Martin Luther spread the word of this truthfulness of scripture and shared the gospel. And it caused a volcanic reaction, as you can probably imagine in the established church, as Martin Luther went as far as to call the Pope of his day, the Antichrist. So the, the popery in his day was, in his mind, um, propagating false gospels and a false witness to what is true. And he was brought before a council and the council said, you must recant, you must deny all of these things. And this is what Martin Luther said. Unless I am convicted of error by the scriptures of which I have appealed and my conscience is taken captive by God's word, I cannot and will not recant of anything. For to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Famous words that he spoke. Now, across the history of the church, men and women taking that kind of resolve have literally found that they had to pay the ultimate price. But in their minds and in the minds of Martin Luther, it was worth it because what they were standing for were the very words that lead to eternal life for men, women and children. Literally, the stakes couldn't be higher than that. Making a stand for everlasting eternal life. And indeed, that was why John wrote his gospel. So similar words to what we have in his epistle in his gospel in John 20 verse 31, he says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, we long for every person in Winchester and beyond to come to put their faith in Jesus Christ and so to receive eternal life, to receive relationship with God, to know the true living God, the creator of the universe. We long for people to know that. That's why we teach the Bible, not because we claim to have a superior holiness in and of ourselves. We don't. All of us are just as messed up as everyone else is, but we hold on to what the Bible says God has done to rescue us from our hopelessness and to place us into everlasting life, confident in what Jesus has done for us. That's what it means for me to be a Christian, to believe those truths. And honestly, I can't think of anything I'd rather anyone hear than those words. And so having received this eternal life, it's then really crucial that we know we have it because we're subjected to the deceitfulness and the lying of the evil one who wants to trip us up, who wants to undermine our faith. So not only does the word matter for us receiving life, but it matters for us to be enjoying this life. And so in Ephesians 6, we have uh, the famous passage talking about God's armor. Last week, the brilliant 
kids leaders uh, from Hope Church encouraged us all as families to go through the armour of God. And then in our family, we were sat around the table and I was speaking to my kids about the armour of God and how how the belt of truth holds everything together, how important the word is, and how the various pieces of armour, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, they speak of protecting us from enemy fire, but that there is a weapon that we have, and the weapon is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And I said to my kids, I said, you need to use that sword. And, and we memorize scripture in our family. I'd encourage you to do that. My four-year-old knows many scriptures she's memorized. If she can do it, then so can you. It's good for you to memorize scripture and learn scripture. So we did a role play. And in this role play, I am the deceiver. And so I speak lies to them. And I encourage my kids to get the sword and to use it to fight me. It was carnage. You should have seen them. They were literally on top of me. They were pounding me with their swords. And if any of our neighbours walked past at that moment, they would have probably questioned what on earth this family is about. It would have looked odd. But the point I wanted them to know was that these scriptures they were memorising, this isn't just a cerebral exercise. They have in every word of God a sword to use to fend off the lies of the evil one. So I said, let's put this to the test. When you're scared or you're feeling tempted to be fearful, do you have a verse for that moment? And they responded. Psalm 56 verse 3 says, when I am afraid, I will trust you. Sword, bang, you strike with that, with that verse. Or when you're tempted to, to think of yourself as not being of any great value or or you, you feel maybe you're not attractive, or you're not, you're not a great, uh, God doesn't think you're great. Whatever the deception may be, you've got a verse for that. I praise you for, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139, verse 14. Bang, you use the sword. And, and we saw how Jesus did just this. When he was in the wilderness, when the evil one tempted him, he says, if you are the son of God, turn this rock into bread. And he said, you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus took the sword and he used it. We need to recognize this is a weapon, that this word is powerful and that we can fend off the evil one with it. Again, this is why we need to take note of what's been written down. Thank you, Lord, for your scriptures. The next thing is this. Whose will wins in your heart? Whose will wins in your heart? Verse 14 says this. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So John's saying the truth, if you've grasped verse 13, if you, you know you have eternal life, that leads you to this brilliant confidence that you can ask anything and he will do it according to his will. So there's the qualifier, ask him anything and he will do it according to his will. Now, let me ask you, does that qualifier dampen the invitation to ask of anything for you or does that, that stir you with greater confidence to ask? I hope it's the latter and not the former. I hope that you know that he will do anything you ask according to his will, as opposed to your will, stirs you to pray more. 
here's, here, let me explain why I hope that's true for you. It's the time of year when parents are asking their children a certain question. That being this, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want for Christmas? And if most children are like mine, when that question is asked, their faces light up, they get excited, and they're like, you know, Usain Bolt, they're off with their list of the things which they want. Now, I've never asked my child that question for them to turn around and go, well, Dad, why are you even bothering asking me this? Because you're going to, you know what you're going to get me anyway. So just, just do it, Dad. Just, just get me my stuff. I've never had that response. I've also never said to my kids, what do you need for Christmas? Uh, because, well, if it's a gift, then, then it's not something which you're obliged to provide for me. I say, what do you want? And by asking what do you want, of course, I'm asking them to think about the things that they would really desire, like to have. And I'm drawing out their affections from them. Now, we recognize that that question can sometimes lead us into a tricky situation if the thing that they want doesn't necessarily align with the thing I'm willing to give to them. Of course, sometimes they might want something that goes beyond the limitations of my very tight budget. Sometimes they might want something that places them in danger or potentially the neighbors at least into danger. And so I can't just say yes to everything which they want. But then there are times when they want something that I am willing to give them. And when that happens, when they ask for something which is uh, affordable and which I think will be good for them, then I will happily give that thing to them. Sometimes they will receive presents which have the wow factor as they open them up. Sometimes they will receive presents which don't have a wow factor, but we know that certain wow factor presents get parked and shelved and never kind of played with. And certain presents which look a little dull upon first opening can be the source of hours of entertainment for them. We know this as, presents and, as parents, and sometimes we have to make that decision as parents. Do we go for the wow factor or do we go for the long-term enjoyment of the gift? A four billion piece puzzle is on my list for one of my children. The point is that as parents, we want to give good gifts to our children and we want to hear from them what it is that they want. And they love to tell us the things that they want. And sometimes we have to coach them in understanding how to want for good things and the difference between what is realistic and, and what is unrealistic for them. Now, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said this to them, pray our Father in heaven. In other words, you're to pray with the posture of children. You're to think of yourself rightfully because you are a child before your heavenly Father. That speaks of humility as well as expectation. A child doesn't demand from their parents, you shall do this. A child recognizes that their parents have authority over them, have power over them, that they are a child and so they need to be humble before them. But a child also knows that 
they can be an expectation that their parents love them and will want to give them good gifts. And so Jesus taught his disciples to pray like that, our Father. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? He loves to give us good gifts. He wants us to ask. And whatever we ask, he will give us according to his will. Ultimately, his will is what matters most. And his will is perfect. And his will is good. So Jesus also prayed, taught us to pray, your will be done. Your will be done. Our Father, your will be done. Your kingdom come. When he was in Gethsemane, he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. He knew what it was to submit to his father's will as he was walking on earth in his humanity. He knew what it was to submit to his father, trusting him, knowing that his will is perfect. And so the same is true for us, that when we come to ask, we can ask anything if we're confident that his will is good. And there are gonna be lots of occasions when we ask for specific things and he gives those specific things to us. And then there will be times when it seems he doesn't. But in those moments, we trust. He's a good father. He gives good gifts to his children. I can trust him with this. Literally, as I was preparing this sermon, a, a WhatsApp came into our, one of our family groups um, and this was literally what the WhatsApp said. Does anyone require a Christmas present this year? <laughs> that was literally what was said. To which I replied, there's the spirit of Christmas in a WhatsApp message. Now, with big families, obviously, sometimes it can be tricky. And we need to be clear on expectations. But it got me thinking. To require a gift? To require a present? Of course, there's only one gift that you and I need and require. That is the gift that the Father has given us in his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the gift of eternal life. It is the gift of reconciliation with God. It's the gift of, of forgiveness, of peace with God, which we have from him. The one gift we need is the greatest gift that we've received in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So how are we to pray then? How are we to know God's will? How do I know God's will for my life? How do I know God's will? Well, do you know what? There's a way in which we can know his will. It says in Romans 12 verse 2, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is good, pleasing and perfect what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God? As our minds are renewed by God's word, by the truth of God's word, we discern his will. We begin to understand more of it. So do I know that it is God's will for COVID to be eradicated within six months? No, I don't know if that is God's will. But I do know that it is God's will that COVID be eradicated. I know that because in Revelation 21, verse 4, it says this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. I know, therefore, that he's going to eradicate this virus. I don't know when, but I know it will happen. 
I can ask him, let it be gone within six months and be confident that he's heard my prayer and submit it to his will. I can't tell him what to do. I'm a child in his eyes. But I do know he's good and I do know his plans are good. So the next thing I just want us to finish with, and it's a funny place to finish. And to be honest, as I've been looking at this, I've been struck with kind of the, 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 the challenge of these two verses on the back of what we've seen. Verses 16 to 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. So firstly, I think this is pretty clear. If we have a brother, this is someone who's a believer, and they've fallen into sin, they're, 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 they're kind of rejecting God. They seem to be uh, living in contradiction to God's word. They don't seem to be enjoying God anymore. or They, they seem to more enjoy the things of the world than they do enjoy uh, knowing God. And that's so painful and hard when we see that happening. But we're told to ask for that brother and God will give him life. It's a, it's a very clear promise. We're to pray for our brother, for our sisters in that situation. Pray for them. God says, I will give them life. Don't just forget those people who may be drifting off. You know, again, one of the evidences that God's really working amongst us is how we love our brother and our sister. And if we're seeing them struggling in their faith or rejecting their faith, then pray for them that they'd come back to knowing God. And it's a promise he will do it. But then he says this, there is, uh, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. He seems to be saying that there's a particular sin that leads to death. Now, in the context, we're, we're talking about eternal life. So there's a sin which leads to kind of an everlasting death. And then he seems to be saying, I'm not talking about you praying for people who've committed that sin. Now, of course, it immediately begs the question, what sin are you talking about so that I can avoid doing that thing? Is it a particular sin that he's speaking of? Now, there's been a lot of debate about this verse and a lot of debate about what's meant by it. Jesus spoke about an unforgivable sin as a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And in the context, it's Jesus before the Pharisees who've seen the power of his miracles, who've seen Lazarus raised from the dead, and they know that Jesus is God. It's like they know deep down he is who he says he is. They are convinced, and yet still they hate him and reject him. And there's a sense in which the person who's had that kind of clarity and perspective, they are willfully, passionately rejecting God. It seems that that's a sin which does lead to death. And it's like John saying, I'm not commanding you to pray for those people. He's not forbidding that we pray. In fact, it's difficult for us to discern to discern when someone's in that place or in that position. A lot of the Pharisees clearly were and Jesus could see it. Now that's obviously quite a troubling thing for us to think about. And, and the reality is, is that as John keeps telling us, sin is a big deal. It's big enough that it's sent the Son of God to the cross. And we must never marginalize it. 
And a lot of sin is just simply pride, you know, self-righteousness. I don't need God. A lot of the sins of this Western world are like that. I don't need God. I don't need this crutch. I'm self-sufficient. I can get through with my life. But when you've seen Jesus for who he really is, he melts you so that you want him. But it seems that, and this is an old Puritan saying, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that will melt one heart seems to harden others. And it's so tragic when that happens. Look, we're being called to pray and to persevere in prayer. We're called to ask. We're called to be confident when we ask. But there clearly is an allocation here for certain individuals who you've been praying and you've been praying and they've been rejecting and rejecting. There seems to be a permission here that there comes a point where you just trust God, where in a sense you're not required to keep on praying, but you you just trust God with this. And we can do that. But let's pray for our brothers and sisters who are, as it says, sinning, who are drifting from God. Let's pray that they would be brought back in like the prodigal son returning home, knowing that there's a father there who just loves to receive back prodigals. Okay, so that's me coming in to land now. Um, and I want to just to urge you all again to know you have eternal life because of who Jesus is, because of what's written, to know that his word really matters, what's written really matters. I want to urge you, keep asking God, keep praying, persevere in prayer. We're a church that loves to pray. We're praying all the time. Keep praying, knowing that his will be done, submitting your heart to his will. And then let's pray for our brothers and sisters who, who have drifted. Let's pray, would God reach them and bring them back to this place of safety and security in his presence? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much that we've received eternal life in your son. I thank you for that gift, the gift that we all need. And I pray, Lord, that we would grow confident, more and more confident each day in this gift assured of our security and our safety, assured that you have our lives in your hands. Thank you for how C.S. Lewis put it, once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen in Narnia. Thank you that once we've received your life, eternity's begun in our hearts. I pray let us all enjoy that today. And we ask for those that drifted off we pray for our brother. We pray for our sisters. Would you draw them back to you? Help them to see that the full life and the happy life is found by being obedient sons and daughters to a father in heaven who is good. Thank you for how you modelled that to us, Lord Jesus. I pray encourage us and help us through this day for your glory. Amen.